case file number 3.10, Project Azorian. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So tell me, uh, what does the CIA, Howard Hughes, Richard Nixon, and piracy all have in common? I don't know. I mean, I know what the <laughs> topic of today's episode is, but what's the punchline? They were all just involved in this, and piracy was a main factor. Um, so today we're talking about uh, Project Azorian, uh, which was the CIA named to the attempt to recover a sunken Soviet K-129 nuclear submarine from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. I think that the ship that they built for this was referenced in uh, Charles Strauss Laundry Files book called Jennifer Morg, which is the second book in that series, which is which is kind of Lovecraftian horror combined with bureaucracy in England. Interesting. I'll, I'll have to read that. I've never I've never read any of those. I enjoyed them quite a bit. The a, possibly the final book in the series. I'm not done with it yet. It uh, was released relatively recently. Hmm. Yeah, so Howard Hughes became involved in this um, because he had worked for the U.S. government before. Back in 1942, mm. he was uh, contracted with the U.S. to design and build an airplane. Remember what that was called? The Spruce Goose. Exactly. Yeah. The uh, plane was the largest ever constructed, and the wingspan had, uh, was of uh, 320 feet. It was only flown once, roughly one mile <laughs> and 70 feet above the water at Long Beach, California, by Hughes himself to prove that it could indeed fly. Because the uh, U.S. government had actually brought him into question if he had misappropriated funds and you know scammed the U.S. government. Well, it was farther than the than the original Wright brothers' flight, uh, which famously is shorter than the wingspan of a seven forty seven. But they got us there, so it's all that counts. Hey, small steps. Exactly. I just I find it hilarious that we now have planes that were longer than the first that that are that have a bigger wingspan than the first flight. But yeah, the Spruce Goose was. Still a boondoggle. Yeah. And so for this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, the Hughes Glomar Explorer, which was the name given to the ship during the recovery efforts. Mm -hmm. And Hughes didn't actually have any hand in this operation like he did with the Spruce Goose and some of the other projects he worked on for the U.S. government. He just loaned his name out okay. to avert suspicion <laughs> from the Soviets during the time. But we'll, we'll, we'll start from the, the main beginning here. Um, this was all post-Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay. So at the time, both the U.S. and Soviet had subs that were prowling uh, the open seas with nuclear weapons on board, uh, ready to fire at a moment's notice. Do you happen to know which uh, what generate how long the nuclear sub programs had been active by this point? At this point, I don't know. Okay, because we have we had the oh, I think it's the Nautilus, the one that's that's anchored by the Intrepid, mm. which had four cruise missiles in this gigantic bay and then there were the subsequent generations were significantly closer to what you think of because of the 
hunt for red october uh movie okay so i was just interested in what in like what kind of uh of sub we're, we're talking about something a little bit more modern or way back this is a diesel powered uh submarine it had, it had three nukes on board oh okay so early cold war era submarines yeah in in april of 1968 the soviet pacific fleet was observed conducting a search deployment in the north pacific ocean that involved some unusual search operations the u.s evaluated that activity as a possible reaction to a soviet submarine being lost oh because that was kind of general <laughs> the the only real like general consensus of what they might be doing and the way they were acting yeah the Soviet surface ships were centered around a location known to the U.S. to be associated with uh, Soviet Gulf tube-class ballistic missile sub-patrol uh, routes. Okay. So that, that's the the class of this uh, submarine. Okay. And so, yeah, each of these subs carried uh, three nuclear missiles and an extended sail coning tower and routinely deployed within missile range of the U.S. West Coast. Oh, so uh, it's usually said conning tower. Oh, it's, it's conning tower? Okay, yeah, I didn't know. I know a little bit about subs. Not a ton, but a little bit about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like I've never actually seen these things. So I was like, uh, okay, was it in the shape of a cone? Maybe I don't know. No, it's uh, when you when you think of a regular sub, it's the part that sticks up out of the main fuselage. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, after weeks of searching, the Soviet fleet finally returned to that home. The U.S. hydrophone network, which is basically just a system of underwater microphones. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Northern Pacific was tasked with reviewing these uh, the recordings to see if they had detected any explosions or implosions related to submarine loss in the area. Yeah. So the Navy analyzed data from the uh, AFTAC, which is the Air Force Technical Application Center, and ADAC Alaska, SOSUS, which is the Sound Surveillance System Array. Mm-hmm. And they were able to locate the wreck of the submarine to within five nautical miles. Uh, the site, though, was hundreds of miles away from where the Soviets were actually looking. <laughs> oh, yeah! I see how this is coming together. <laughs> <laughs> so using that data, they localized the site of the K-129 wreck to the vicinity of 40.1 degrees north latitude and 179.9 degrees east longitude, which is pretty close to the international date line. Okay. In July of 68, the U.S. Navy initiated Operation Sand Dollar with the deployment of the USS Halibut from Pearl Harbor to the wreck site. The objective of this mission was basically to locate the crash site of the K-129 and photograph it. Uh, the Halibut actually had been configured in 1965 with the deep submergent search equipment and was the only specifically equipped submarine the U.S. had at the time to do this sort of thing. Oh, did they just, you know, do it on a lark for the Halibut? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Nice, nice. I, I like it. just couldn't resist. <laughs> Income to down votes for the podcast. Exactly. So after three weeks, Halibut was able to locate the wreck using robotic remote-controlled cameras. Uh, it then spent around seven weeks taking 20,000 close-up photos of every aspect of the wreck. And doing that actually gave them like basically a, um, a classified distinguished award from the president oh, awesome. for what they had done here. Hey, they deserved it. That's, that, that's a heck of a thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a long time and a hell of a lot of photos. Yeah. So in 1970, based upon all this evidence, Defense Secretary Melvin Laird and Henry Kissinger, who was the National Security Advisor at the time, mm-hmm. proposed a clandestine plan to recover the wreckage so the U.S. could study the technology from the submarine to possibly recover any crypto materials. Yep. So this plan altogether boasted a uh, whopping estimated success rate of 10%. Well, I mean, we know from the episode we, we did about Enigma that 
recovering some of that crypto equipment was really important. And we know that one of the places they got at least some of that equipment was off of the U-boat that was captured. So it's not the first time. It's, yeah. I mean, they had some precedent that that maybe this would be valuable. Yeah. And the, the percentage of success actually increased like slowly as the project was, you know, getting along the board. Yeah, sure. Yeah. When, when they realized like, oh, oh, crap, we can actually kind of build some of this stuff. This isn't quite as wild ass guess, a wild ass guess as we thought. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, President Nixon accepted the proposal and the CIA was tasked uh, to attempt a recovery. So the government hired on and contracted Global Marine Development Incorporated, which is a pioneer in offshore drilling operations. Uh, they were contracted to design, build, and operate the uh, Hughes Glomar Explorer and to salvage the Soviet sub in secret. The ship was built at the Sun Shipbuilding Yard near Philly, mm -hmm. and Howard Hughes agreed to help out by speaking to the media about his new project of mining manganese nodules from the ocean floor. I don't know if you know what those are. Manganese is, is, is a, uh, I don't think it's technically a rare earth, but it's one of those manganese is, is, is important for a lot of alloys that we need. Yeah, yeah. The mineral concentrations at the bottom of the sea um, formed in concentric layers of iron and manganese hydroxides. So there's basically a big old chunk that might contain valuable metals that we want. Mm -hmm. So it made sense that a billionaire would, you know, be interested in trying to pull those things up. Well, also, how many times have we seen billionaires recently going in to do things that it may not be as valuable as as they think they are. Hyperloop. Oh, sorry. I just had something in my throat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Since he was, you know, was in a center crazy billionaire, people were just like, oh, he's just doing crazy billionaire stuff, yeah. like trying to go into quote unquote space. It occurs to me that maybe we should be have a little bit more scrutiny to the things that we that we see Bezos and Musk do at this point, um, just in case they're pulling the same kind of thing. You you would think. Yeah. So uh, the, the ship itself actually had a champagne christening ceremony and a fabricated press release celebrating its launch. Cool. So it was full blown like a uh, cover story going on. Even when people took notice, the ship was shrouded in secrecy and observing reporters were not permitted to view the launch. The details of the ship's destination and the mission were never released. Uh, this was all just chalked up to Hughes' reputation as a mysterious recluse because it was reported that he even dodged his own company board meetings. <laughs> I mean, hey. You couldn't ask for 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 a better uh, excuse. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, yeah, it fit in just super well. Yeah. So during the ship's trip to the site of the Cape 129, uh, they ran into a couple little snags. One was it was it was too wide to pass through the Panama Canal. <laughs> okay. So so that was a no go. Another issue uh, came up when the technicians that were boarding the ship uh, they were boarding from Chile. And this was the exact same day that the U.S. was assisting a Chilean coup. <laughs> so, so one side of the CIA and the other side of the CIA didn't compare calendars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I actually wrote in my notes, I was like, I guess the CIA got their schedule mixed up. I mean, I was about to say, I, right as I was thinking, like, well, maybe the state. No, that wouldn't be the state. That would be the CIA. Was the CIA? Doing yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, Frank, when, when were we doing that coup? Oh, shit. Friday. Uh oh. <laughs> Can you put it up? No, I guess not. I guess we're going to see what happens. Yeah, it's like, damn it. All right. Well, so the K-129 was at a depth of over 16,000 feet, which would be beyond the depth of any ship salvage operation ever attempted. Mm -hmm. 
and the the uh, explorer itself was a fifty-seven thousand ton ship. And construction of of that began on November first, nineteen seventy-two. So the recovery efforts focused on a large mechanical claw, which Lockheed officially titled the capture vehicle, the CV, but most everyone called it Clementine. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Didn't really go into why it was called Clementine. I guess it was just you know a quaint little name given to it. I just figured that the song was done after it. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it was amazingly well at squeezing oranges. Ah, there you go. That's a good one. <laughs> so Clementine was designed to be lowered to the ocean floor and grasp the sub and then grab that targeted section of the, the sub and pull it up into the ship's hold. Mm-hmm. The, the claw was actually designed, though, and uh, built in a giant floating barge called HMB-01 in Redwood City. In the spring of uh, 1974, uh, HMB-01 submerged and met up with the Explorer off the coast of Catalina Island in Southern California. This just sounds like something straight out of a Bond movie. Like yeah. The one specifically I'm thinking of is from Russia with Love. <laughs> yeah. So, so HMB-1 opened up its roof and the Glomar sailed over top of it, opened up its bottom, and they just handed off the steel claw and then just went up on their way. Wow. And the entire transfer went unnoticed by anyone apparently it's a really good really good handoff cia they're the best at this apparently yeah so obviously the major requirement of this entire effort was to keep the floating base stable and in position over the fixed point that was sixteen thousand feet below mm-hmm. you, you kind of don't want to be moving around a, a lot while you're trying to snag something that far down yeah and what they utilized was a, a thing called a pipe string to lower clementine down to the ocean floor which is basically just pairs of 30 foot steel pipes they're strung together and lowered section by section. Um, just, you know, you attach the claw first mm. to one set of pipes, lower it down, and just keep adding pipes as you go down until it hits the bottom. I'm pretty sure, based on how I it's been described to me, that's how um, offshore drilling uh, uh, drill heads work. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the exact same thing. Okay, well, I mean, that makes sense. They're specialists yeah. in offshore drilling. <laughs> yeah, this, this configuration was designed by Western Gear Corps of uh, Everett, Washington. And upon a successful capture, the lift process would be just be reversed and each pair of steel pipes just drawn back up, removed one at a time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just pulled the submarine into the moon pool, which did not know what this was until I started looking into this. But it's basically a door at the bottom of the ship that allows researchers and drill ships and other things to lower equipment straight into the ocean. Yeah. It also works for divers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They said like special consideration for divers. Um, when it comes to these, because obviously they have to take into account uh, the pressure mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. But yeah, super cool. Like I do not spend much time at all on ships, so very, very neat. Yeah, I, I scuba dive not a ton, but I've done enough of it. Yeah, and obviously this, you know, allowed this entire operation to take place underwater, mm-hmm. which was a main thing to keep it away from prying eyes. Oh yeah. Well, also if you think about it, it's the only way because. What are you going to do? Try and bring it over the side? Yeah, yeah. It'd, it'd be just <laughs> way too hard. And you'd risk, yeah, breaking off chunks of it or something like that as you pulled it onto the ship. Well, also, like, if you're bringing it alongside and then, and you're trying to bring it over, you risk rolling the ship that you're trying to bring it into. Yeah, yeah. Like, bringing it up inside underneath just seems like the obvious choice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the Hughes Glomar Explorer arrived at the target site on July 4th mm-hmm. and conducted salvage operations for over a month there. Okay. Wow. During that time, uh, though, at least two Soviet Navy ships visited the work site. 
Yeah, the, the ocean-going tugboat SB-10 and the Soviet missile range instrumentation ship named uh, Shazma. So it was found out after uh, 1991 that the Soviets had actually been tipped off about the operation and were aware the CIA was planning some sort of salvage operation, but the military command believed it was it would be impossible and it could never be performed. So they disregarded any further intelligence warnings coming in about this. Did the Russian military or the Soviet military realize that it was... Um... That that was where the the K one twenty nine was. So the ships in the area were ordered to report any unusual activity mm-hmm. because so they didn't know this was actually the spot the K one twenty nine was in. Okay. So it made it difficult for them to stop any of the operation. So it just happened that these two boats were in that area, <laughs> um, you know, coming upon them. So later on, uh, Soviet ambassador Antoly uh, Dubrinin started sending urgent messages back to the Soviet Navy, uh, warning that the operation was imminent. And Soviet engineers actually uh, reevaluated their position and were like, oh, yeah, actually, it would be possible to recover the K-129. Mm-hmm. And uh, U.S. Army General uh, Roland Lejeu, um stated he had received briefing from the CIA that Clementine had suffered a catastrophic failure during operations. Mm-hmm. And this caused uh, two-thirds of the already raised portion of the K-129 to sink back to the ocean floor. So they got a third of it, sounds like. Apparently, several of the claws intended to grab the submarine fractured. Mm-hmm. This was pro- possibly because they were manufactured from uh, margin steel. Looking it up, it's basically, it, it's very strong, but it's not as ductile as compared to other steel. Right. Meaning, yeah, yeah changes in its shape causes this break and uh, snap. And that, I mean, that's kind of the standard thing when you get to the, the performance limits of, of materials. It's like, you either make it stronger or you make it more ductile and resilient, but you can't do both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, um, in fact, to this day, the CIA plays this off as a failed mission, mm-hmm. and this allows the CIA to r- remain mostly mute on what all it gathered during this operation. Ha! Interesting. Yeah, the recovered section of the K-129 contained two nuclear submarine uh, torpedoes, however, so we got two out of the three nukes. Yeah. So the project wasn't a complete failure. And I know from the Cuban Missile Crisis, one of the times when we could have seen a nuclear use in in anger in in uh in a non-test phase was because at least one of the subs in the cuban missile crisis one of the russian subs had a nuclear torpedo that he declined to use so i know that they had them yeah <laughs> you're, you're talking about the um the admiral that was court-martialed right yes he was court-martialed and and yeah it he was not received as a hero when he got back to the soviet very much the opposite yeah yeah because I, I remember watching a story on him probably on the history channel when i was younger and basically like had he not basically halted um pushing the button like we would have been plunged into world war three with nukes yeah and he just he was like he was like no no this isn't what you're thinking it is like we gotta wait and see there's some question as to as to how bad nuclear war would have been at that particular point in time whether it would have been Mm -hmm. bad or total annihilation but it we wouldn't be making podcasts now i would wager to say that yeah exactly (laughs) And beyond the the two nukes that we recovered, uh, the bodies of the crewmen were also recovered. And after recovering them, they gave them a memorial service with uh, military honors and buried them at sea in a metal casket uh, due to radiation concerns. Uh, during the burial, they played both of the national anthems, mm-hmm. like the Soviet and the U.S., and um, filmed it all. And this this entire thing was filmed mm-hmm. by the CIA, but th- this portion was uh, later released and given to the Soviets so the families could see that their their family members had been laid to rest properly. You know what? They did a solid. That was that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And other materials such as code books uh, were obtained mm -hmm. um, along with various subcomponents such as sonar equipment. And the bell of the K-129 was also recovered. And that was later returned to the Soviet Union as part of a diplomatic effort. And maybe a little bit of a, hey, hey, we got this. Yeah. So while the CIA considers this a abysmal failure, quote unquote, uh, they also consider it uh, one of the greatest intelligence coups of the Cold War. So they, they want to have it both ways is what I'm hearing. But <laughs> exactly. I would consider this a qualified success, especially when you when you were starting with such a low percentage operation to start with. Mm -hmm. Whatever they thought the feasibility was when they set when they when they launched the Glomar Explorer and started sailing to the site, the fact was they estimated it at ten percent when they authorized it. Yeah, this was not considered a a high expectancy. This is a high risk, high reward mm -hmm. operation, and having a qualified success with that is. It's still pretty substantial. If they consider it one of the biggest coups of the um, uh, of the Cold War, then I'll bet you they they felt good about the money they spent. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting to be like this is the greatest intelligence coup of all time, and uh, was a screw up. <laughs> oh really? That's great. What did you find? Oh this, yeah, this was a horrible failure. I'm sorry, we can't tell you where we go. So the New York Times writer, uh, Seymour Hirsch, mm -hmm. had actually planned to publish a story on the events in 1975, oh. but he delayed publication um, because the government actually came and talked to the um, the head of the press and told them that, you know, like, you can't publish this while the operation's still going on. Like, it's going to jeopardize the entire mission. But the New York Times story was published in March of 1975 because the L.A. Times went ahead and just published the story, <laughs> even though the government was the government was also trying to tell them to stop. You let me get scooped because of this? You dicks. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. So a FOIA request was submitted to the CIA for more information on this by uh, Harriet and Felipe. But the CIA refused to either confirm or deny the existence of such documents. And basically, this type of response has now become known as the Glomar response. And, you know, obviously used all the time. And, you know, you could just watch yeah. CNN hearings and stuff like that. Like, I can, I think I can neither confirm nor deny. Yeah. So. And as much information as we've gotten over in the last 10 or 15 years from FOIA requests, we know that there's just mm -hmm. a ton that isn't. And they're supposed to keep that stuff under wraps for the lifetime of the folks that are supposed to be involved. But yeah. Our experience with uh, with even stuff from World War II is that, you know, the calendar date isn't always enough. Yeah, yeah. So like any uh, good story, mm -hmm. there's also conspiracy theory. Of course. Time Magazine, as well as uh, court filings by Felice D. Uh, D. Cohen mm -hmm. and Morin H. Halperinen uh, suggest that the alleged project goal of raising the sub might have been a cover story for another mission. So a cover story with a cover story. Exactly. It goes that deep. So what, so what was the mission that they were covering up? So they believe that the tapping of the undersea communication lines was um, one such event. They also believe that they installed uh, underwater equivalent of missile silos and the installation and uh, report of surveillance systems to monitor ship and submarine movements are also listed as possible uh, missions. We know that tapping of undersea cables has been done, mm -hmm. although it's usually done much closer to shore or at least all the instances I know of it. Um, but that's the thing that we do, that the United States has been known to do with our submarines covertly. Have you heard of Operation Ivy Bells? No. So this might lead into another episode because, yeah, uh, we, we've done that. We we tap the uh, communication lines for the Soviets, and the operation was called Operation Ivy Bells. 
You know what? We, I think we will do. We will try and do an episode on that one. <laughs> I would say that the missile silos thing doesn't ring true to me because nah. all of the missile silos that we currently have on land, which would be much easier to deal with, require a crew to maintain. Yeah, yeah. So, like, nah. Yeah, but this would require a crew of fish, and they're much cheaper. Mm. They're not union. Yeah, but they do it for the gill of it. I was going to say, where do you where where do you send them to missile school? Where's that? They, they just have the regular schools. They don't have missile schools. <laughs> uh, the fish puns. Oh, God. Um, yeah. Yeah. We could go on all day. Yeah. Oh, we'll just keep them grouped together right here. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Sorry. This is a whale of a tale. I know it's not a fish, <laughs> but. Yes. So uh, W. Craig uh, Reed in 2010 um, published a book called Red November Inside the Secret U.S.-Soviet Submarine War. Cute name. Red October, Red November. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he tells an inside account of the project provided by Joe Houston, who was the senior engineer who designed the cutting edge camera system used by the uh, the Glomar Explorer team to photograph the K-129. Mm-hmm. The team needed pictures in order to design the grappling arm to be precise enough um, to, you know, latch onto it. Mm-hmm. And Houston worked with a mysterious Mr. P who was identified as John Parangoski, who worked for the CIA deputy director, Carl E. Duckett. And uh, they were the two leaders of the Project Azorian. Okay. So Duckett later worked with Houston at another company and suggested that the CIA may have required more from the KD-129 than admitted to uh, the public. Shocking. Reed also detailed how the deep submergence towed sonar array technology used by the submarine Halibut to find the K-129 was also used for Operation Ivy Bell to wiretap the Soviet communication cables. Not surprised uh, towed sonar, sonar arrays are were... Again, to the best of my very limited knowledge, uh, a standard piece of equipment that that the Navy uses. Mm-hmm. So I'll just leave, or I'll end it here with that. If you ever happen to be in DC, um, you can actually check out the Spy Museum down there, and you'll see in one of their exhibits they have a submarine control panel, a wig, and some detailed white prints, and uh, a chunk of manganese that are all on display associated to for this project. <laughs> And the wig itself was actually worn by CIA Deputy Director Vernon Walters uh, when he was paying the Glomar Explorer incognito visits. So we have a real covert wig there in the spy museum. Yeah, it looks pretty ratty, but, you know. Yeah, there's no accounting for what covert, what it takes to disguise yourself back in the 60s, I guess. Yeah, and you don't want to be too stylish and stand out. (laughs) Well, I mean, hey, that's why Austin Powers was so unbelievable. Of the style he, exactly. he, he brought around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, shocking that the CIA isn't forthcoming about, about what they did. I'm that's totally off-brand for them. Mm-hmm. But I I that was a really audacious project. Um we spent a fair bit of money in the Cold War on various intelligence-based things, like the spy satellites and the photograph photo reconnaissance planes were significantly higher expected expected return yeah and from what i was reading um i don't think we've ever tried something this um this deep in the ocean Mm -hmm. um since so we can look up right now i don't know how deep the uh the titanic was they've raised parts of that and and uh i mean that was done as a civilian project out in the open but it was done in like the late 80s early 90s so the Titanic was 12,500 feet. Only about 4,000 feet deeper. So deeper, and that's substantial, but yeah. but like not 
entirely outside of the ballpark of what we did of what was done for Titanic. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember in junior high seeing them use the 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 robotic uh, submersibles to to survey it. Yeah, but yeah, I will I will end this with saying that uh, that's crazy deep in the ocean, and I mean, anytime you're going down there, you just you're just asking to wake a Cthulhu. So, I guess that was Project Azorian. We may never see its like again. Yep. And maybe they did half a dozen more of more things kind of this crazy. We may never know. Exactly. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.